I'll help you with this, Josh. Thanks. that good guys we've got a great tech team that puts this on every week and works really hard so I'm really really thankful for their acts of service their willingness to do this and uh, they're certainly qualified as well so that makes it even better <laughs> all right well good morning it as uh, Jordan said we had a really great time out in the parking lot uh, probably one of the better parking lot experiences I've ever had so <laughs> it was uh, really wonderful, really enjoyable, and I uh, hope that you can make it if you feel comfortable with that. But certainly that's why we're going to do live stream at the same time so that we can accommodate uh, many different individuals and their families. So this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 110. So if you've got your Bible and or smartphone or pad, uh, go ahead and get to that psalm. And um, before we actually start looking at these verses, I'm going to go just a slightly different uh, start off here because one of the things that when we're looking at, at Scripture, sometimes we can lose our place in it and not be understanding the fact that within the, 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 the Scriptures, the Bible, we can miss the person altogether, meaning the person of God, the person of Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit. And so it's rather important that we focus on that because this Psalm 110 is a very predictive psalm about a person. And why is that important, which we're going to get into. But I'm going to read from uh, John 5. And this is uh, one of Jesus' many arguments with religious leaders whom he often had... Um, arguments with. In fact, if anything, the religious leaders of the day were his foil. Uh, it, it was his most displeasure, even anger, and at times railing condemnation to religious leaders. So in speaking to them, he said, you pour over the scriptures because you presume by them that you possess eternal life. These are the very words, he says, that testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. That's in John 5.39. And very powerful words that he spoke to a condition of religiousness that honored God's word, but never honored the God of the word. The central pur purpose of all scripture is to reveal God and all that he is. His whole nature, his feelings, what he thinks, and then to lead all mankind into that knowledge of himself. So whether it's to know the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, knowing him is the only means to experience eternal life, either in this short-term lifespan or eternity to come. Because Jesus again says in John 17, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, as he's speaking to the Father in, in that priestly prayer, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, whom you have sent. And you know, in, in the chaos of these times, and whether it's the promises of people that have failed, or the supposed certainty of how our lives would be going in this time of life, we do need reassurances that God and what he has said is trustworthy. Now, that's not to say that it's God's fault, 
that we find ourselves in this place of questioning. It's just that we're finding out in these times where and how our faith has been misplaced. And then grappling with what really is certain in this time. And that's why this particular psalm, Psalm 110, and the prediction it makes about a Messiah King needs to be held close to our heart. So I'm just going to go ahead and read through the passage. Read the psalm. It's only seven verses long. And David sings and starts out by saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord extends your mighty scepter from Zion, so rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. To you belongs the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead. He will crush the leaders far and wide. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, Father, there's many things in this song that are uh, poetic and certainly hard to understand. But we ask that you would reveal uh, yourself in the midst of this and that we can gain understanding as to what you're saying and what you're doing and what you have done and will do in the future. Please, Father, let your word remain in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this psalm and the passages that we've just read is one of the most quoted by the writers of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at two of the, two of the roles of this promised person, one as a ruling king and the other a Messiah priest. So let's start out with verse the first verse of this song. And it says, the Lord. And it starts out with capitalized letters, which, again, we've shared this before, but it's good to be reminded that that is the proper name that God revealed himself first to Moses in the bush, the burning bush. And the word Lord is a, is a Hebrew translation of the consonants that are used. And the closest would be Yahweh or Jehovah in our language. So it says really that Yahweh said unto my Lord, and this is David speaking, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now Jesus quoted this in Matthew 22, 43 through 45. We're going to be looking at a lot of different passages this morning. So if you can write them down for further look later, that would be important. Jesus also, this is also repeated by Mark in his account of the good news of Jesus as well. But Jesus quotes this showing how David called the Messiah Lord, recognizing that the Messiah was greater than David himself. While the Pharisees, and I'm going to read that passage in Matthew 22, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, well, how is it then that David speaking by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord. For he says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day, no one else dared ask him any questions. Now, Peter also quotes this particular passage on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples in the upper room, and the noise and the power of that coming drew a huge crowd of people to where they were staying and praying. And I'm not going to read the entire passage, but in Acts chapter 2, especially in verses 34 and 35, in Peter's what you might call a sermon, a presentation, a proclamation, he says this about this passage. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here with us today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, David, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, and that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, again, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter goes on to say, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Powerful. Powerful predictive fulfillment. Finally, third reference I'm going to refer to is in the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is talking about death and resurrection as a topic. And he is explaining in this passage that the enemy, the final enemy, which is death, will be destroyed under the rule and dominion of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, again, this is very powerful because death holds sway over this entire planet. And yet this resurrected Messiah King is going to come. And then finally, death will be put away. That enemy of ours and is also in First Corinthians called God's enemy that will be destroyed and put under his feet. Let's look at the second verse of this psalm. He says, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh, specifically, in this case, God the Father, spoke to the Messiah, specifically God the Son, telling him to take his enthroned place until the Father provided the victory for the Son. The image of a footstool isn't like your lazy boy footstool that you guys sit on to watch whatever, and yet you put your foot on, comfortable as that may be. But this uh, image of a footstool is, is taken from the practice of Eastern princes, that slaves and conquered enemies were to be put to the most degrading of positions. And as this phrase implies, these rulers would put their foot on the necks of their conquered enemies. That's the picture of this king that's being shown here. Now, it's really interesting that we take note of that, that Jesus fulfilled these predicted promises. 
Now, uh, in a handout that I gave, I, I gave a handout of just 44 predicted prophecies of this coming king, this coming Messiah, that were fulfilled by Jesus. And obviously, I can't give you a handout, but I would encourage you to take just one easy step, go to your browser and later on or at some point, and look up all the predicted prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And the, the chances of one person fulfilling these predicted prophecies of, of a king and of a messiah and the resurrection and the death are too astronomical to be even able to say, and I'm not a math major by any means. But I would encourage you to look at that because of the sureness of what God says and what he promises has been fulfilled, which means what he says for the present and for the future will be fulfilled as well. Notice as we go on to the further description that David says about this mighty king and his rulership, it says that the Lord, again Yahweh, extends your mighty scepter, his son, from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing on your day of battle. And again, arrayed in a holy splendor, this this people is from the womb of the dawn. To you belongs the dew of your youth. Now, just because of time's sake, I'm not going to go further into this verse except for a couple of highlighted that, that speaks of his rulership. But just do your own study. There's some neat things to read about that. But it says that Yahweh extends his mighty scepter from Zion. And it really shows that in this time of ruling that is going to happen when the king returns, that the king's authority would not be merely limited to Israel. It would extend to the entire world, the entire planet, dominating all kings and nations of the earth, giving him rule over all his enemies. And notice that passage where it says, your people will be willing in your day of battle. It's really interesting when the people of God, his followers, see and experience the victory of their king, they gladly give themselves to his work. Notice there's no mercenaries in this battle. No slaves are pressed into the ranks of this king's soldiers. This army is composed entirely of willing volunteers. Now, when you think of being in the army, some of you have been in the military and obviously with different feelings about your superiors. And sometimes there was not necessarily a willingness to go to battle or to obey the orders, but certainly you had to do it, and you did it. But notice in this that this victorious king does not put us into slavery. He is worth and worthy of being able to be followed and being his army as willing volunteers. Now, it's interesting, before David goes on to describe the rest of this king's rule, he's moved to write by the Spirit and sing about another quality about this king. Now, you know, if you're reading the whole psalm, it, it really seems out of place in the song. It's like you that know the old vinyl when you'd scratch the vinyl. Like, Again, I'm dating myself, but that's okay. The fact is, is that there's a reason this is put here. I believe it's put here to demonstrate this Messiah king is different than any other king that's ever been on planet Earth. This king is not some dominant interloper that by reason of force 
or by reason of subterfuge or by his own machinations became a king, but rather this king has been made an intercessor between God and man and has identified with humanity to be worthy of his kingship. I really find it really thought-provoking for myself and comforting that right in this middle, right in the middle of this song about this ruling king executing judgment over the whole planet, some of the harsh language that's used, that God enters this oath about this mighty king that he will also be a priest. I'll read that verse again. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yahweh himself has sworn and will not change his mind. He won't relent. This puts the statement which follows in a really most solemn and strong context that's possible. God himself, the Father, has made an oath that would never be annulled. God pledges his own name, and with the fullness of his unchanging power, that he will fulfill this promise. It's an all-powerful decree made by the God of the universe. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is an oath regarding the Messiah, his son, from the Father, and he vowed that the Messiah has an eternal priesthood, and that it was after the pattern and or order of Melchizedek, who's mentioned in one single account in what we call the Old Testament, Genesis 14. Now, I'm going to go into this because there's a reason. Um, obviously, I'm not going to delve into this like I would like because it would have more uh, understanding in the context. But I'm just going to give a brief account of this. Now, in Genesis 14, Abraham, who had been called by God to move to the country which he called a promised land, wandered in the land and in that span of time had large increase of his flocks and herds, family members. And at one point, his uh, nephew Lot, they had to separate because there was just too many for the pasture land. So Lot went off one way, Abraham went off another. But after some time when uh, the uh, in the passage of time, Lot and his family and all the herds and the people, part of the family that was with Lot, was taken captive by uh, a, an army. And so Abraham went with his army, took and defeated these kings, and brought back Lot, the family, and uh, saved them, literally. And so in this period of time after the battle, Abraham meets a mysterious priest named Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, who was also a king over the city of Salem, which is an ancient name for the city of Jerusalem, which makes him also the king of peace. Very interesting. So Melchizedek, briefly, was not merely a worshiper of the true God. He had an honored title called Priest of the Most High God. It's the only time we see in the Old Testament, besides the Levitical priesthood, where a priest is mentioned with such prominence. Melchizedek also blessed Abraham, demonstrating his greatness over the future generation of Israelites. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe, which is a tenth part of all the spoils of battle that's mentioned there in Genesis 14.20, which again was a sign of honor and respect and also recognizing the source of blessing. 
Now, there's also no mention of any father or mother of Melchizedek as he appears in this passage without any genealogy, which again is, is really distinctly different considering that genealogies is, plays a very prominent part in scripture. So with this oath, God reveals that there is another order of being a priest, a priesthood, apart from the priestly order of Aaron. Remember, the Israelite priests were all descended from Aaron, who was from the tribe of Levi, and served in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, offering sacrifices and conducting ceremonies according to God's law. Here, we see that God has established another priestly order, after the pattern of who we just looked at, Melchizedek. This king's priesthood is not like that of Aaron. This is a high, the high priest with Aaron's Levitical line always passed away, died, never to return to that particular place of high priest. They had to be replaced by someone else from the tribe of Levi. Also, this high priest was required to make sacrifices for his own sins as well as the people's sins. And the Levitical priesthood was never able to take care of the real problem of guilt that underlied sins. This declared high priest that David is speaking about is powerful, never-ending, and unchangeable. The oath was so important about the unchangeableness of it that the author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, refers to it five times. And I'm just going to emphasize a few of these. Hebrews 5, 5, and then 5, 10 emphasize that this is Yahweh's or Jehovah's declaration and not something that the Messiah claimed for himself. In Hebrews 6, 20, the emphasis is on the idea that Jesus, the Messiah, serves now and forever an active high priest for his people, always making prayers, petitions, and pleadings for those who are his. Amazing when you think about this. The high priest through the Levitical line could only offer sacrifices for himself and his people, and that was it. This high priest is continually offering up prayers and pleadings and petitions for his people day and night. So in this life when people do fail us, because all of us do fail, The point is we have someone who is risen into heaven, who is acting as an intercessor for us, for you, for me. This one overarching truth is that that separates Jesus as a perfect high priest, as opposed to the priesthood of Aaron, is that merely Aaron merely offered up sacrifices for himself and his people. But Jesus as a high priest was himself the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Thus, he became the compassionate and forgiving high priest. Which means, he identified to the deepest degree with humanity that allows him to become the righteous ruling king as we read in these finishing stanzas of this psalm that David wrote. Now, again, because of limitations, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these last verses, but I want to highlight just a few high points about this ruling Messiah King. Again, looking at this passage again, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead. He will crush 
the leaders far and wide. Wow. Heavy verse. Yahweh, God, is at this ruling king's right hand. And the favor and the strength of the Messiah is aligned as a sign of favor and a sign of power of the strength of God, Yahweh. The second part of this psalm carries the king from the throne to the battlefield. He comes off from the throne where he has sat at Jehovah's right hand, and now Jehovah, his father, is standing at his right hand. He's going to judge this future king. Jesus is going to judge among the nations. And in his conquest, this Messiah will exercise his authority over all nations of this planet, bringing his judgment. He will fill the places with dead bodies. And this seems to anticipate the slaughter at the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19. Now again, it seems really harsh in comparison to these days when when we think of violence in such a way as, as being murderous. But again, we have to understand that this Messiah, this priestly king, has earned the right by being a sacrifice. He's going to execute kings. And with the authority mentioned in verse 2, this strength of this Messiah extends out past Israel with wrath to bring righteous judgment, not unrighteous, but righteous judgment, even against the greatest kings and rulers. Now, the word for wrath here in the Hebrew means a burning, kindled anger. Kind of like when you start a fire, it takes a while, and then all of a sudden it bursts into full heat. Now, we understand from many places in Scripture that it says that God is slow to anger and full of mercy. And he has extended his full mercy with the sacrifice of his chosen Messiah, He poured out his anger on his own son who paid the penalty for the rebellion and sins of this world and everyone that's been in it and will be in it. But when the Messiah King comes the second time, he's not coming to die. He's coming as a judging king who destroys his enemies because they rejected the very offer of mercy and forgiveness to be able to come under God's favor and his blessing. This is also why we don't see his people mentioned in this process of condemning judgment, like we did earlier in the future, because King Jesus is the only one qualified to judge with condemnation. That's important. In many passages of the Bible, God speaks to his followers about wrath-filled, condemning anger. And I'm going to mention just two verses to give context to this. In Romans 12:19, Paul, who's writing to the church in Rome, to fellow disciples, he says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Secondly, I want to read out of James 1, uh, 19 and 20. James says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. 
Man, this is, these are words for us in this time. When it seems like wrath and anger and condemning judgment is the language of our country. And maybe even around the world. Where violence and anger has taken over. And yet, the temptation for us is to restrain and be controlled by the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. Certainly, we, we have times when we get angry or we'll say something out of anger. But to abide and stay in that place is not the way of his disciples that follow the Lord Jesus because the time of the coming king is coming, but it is not yet. This is a time of mercy and grace and forgiveness that God's still offering. And we are to reflect this, our King and our Messiah, to reflect that same spirit, especially in this time of anger, racial hatred, division, condemnation. So let's take heart and follow that. There's a choice that every person has, and it's extended by this king and high priest named Jesus. He says this, To the one who overcomes, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And that's a promise that we need to hold on to and keep at the forefront of our minds, that we are constantly being challenged to overcome, so that when we do and we're obedient and follow him, we also will be granted that right to sit with him on his throne because he overcame and sat down. Now, just to finish up, I think it's really important that we pay closer attention to God's faithful promises being fulfilled and that he will fulfill in the future as well as now. I think it leads us to that solid truth that he really is in control of these times and events that we're experiencing right now. And that as we pray, your, your kingdom come. Your desires and will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We're partnering with him as his people and as his army representing him in this time of distress. Now, it's hard. It's hard to always remember these things and to keep these in the forefront of our memory in these days of distress and uncertainty. But I want to encourage you from a couple of examples from how this worked with the disciples. Now, remember, Jesus repeatedly said to his disciples that he was going to die, would rise from the grave, and the coming kingdom. But even though he repeated it over and over again, and in person, mind you, not, not you know, invisible, but he was there with them. Every time he would say these things repeatedly, that he would die and rise again from the dead, one of the writers says that these words were stolen from the disciples. So that when Jesus was murdered and crucified and put in the grave, all their hopes, their dreams, their desires were just laid on the ground in broken pieces. And you want to talk about being despondent because they felt that their their faith had been misappropriated. But what does Jesus do? He comes and comforts each one of them. He appears to them. He speaks to them. He comforts them, strengthens them. I mean, even Peter, who denied him, he met with Peter and spoke to him. Think of the two disciples on the road 
to Emmaus. And I'm going to read this passage. Uh, this is at the end of Luke's uh, account of the good news. And uh, just listen to this and, and be encouraged by this. Now, this is the same day of the resurrection of Jesus on that Sunday. It says that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles uh, from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, why are you discussing together? As you, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. <laughs> I love how Jesus draws this out. He says, About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels and that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. How does Jesus reply to this? How kind is he? He says to them, how foolish you are. <laughs> I just find that so refreshing. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's powerful. That is why whom we follow is worthy of our trust and our praise and our adoration. Because it's not just some fairy tale that happened or something made up by man, but something that has been predicted, fulfilled, is being fulfilled now and will be fulfilled in the time to come. Remember this truth, guys. The earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it. He raises up and sets down whom he wishes to rule on this planet. And the promise of a king, the first time, a king who would give himself as a sacrifice, cleanse the sins of his people as a priest, and would rise from the dead, it came to pass. The promises of him as king, ruling king, to come back and reign over this earth will come to pass as well. Hold this dear to your heart. My friends, my brethren, my family. He is worthy to be praised. He is trustworthy to follow in times of stress. So just join me in prayer real quick from home if you can. And let's end. Again, Lord, considering your full mercy, considering all the things that you've done, the miraculous, powerful things that you've done and promised and happened, Lord, again, we, we just want to commit our bodies to you, which is our reasonable act of worship to you. We realize, Lord, we are, are weak, 
slow to, <laughs> slow to hear, slow to remember, and at times very distressed as we look around, sometimes even angry and furious. But Lord, as we look to you and look to your promises and look to who you are as the person, our very life, our very, our, our very hope, living hope, that, Lord, we would recapture a a close vision of who you are and come to know you better and better every single day as we seek and to look for you and to hear you and to follow you, that you would reveal yourself. And so for this week coming and for the times to come, would you grant us favor and grace as we come under your love and your mercy, as we confess our sins and are willing just to walk in your light, that we have such a great high priest is you and our ruling king who has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. We love you and thank you for who you are. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. We love you and thank you, Holy Spirit, that you dwell in us and upon us as we walk in you. All in Jesus' name, Father, we ask these things. Amen. Blessings on you this week. I pray that his face shines on you and that you enjoy all that he has for you and that you walk out all the purposes that he has planned for you. God bless you.